This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. In October of 2018, a tragedy struck a synagogue in Squirrel Hill, a neighborhood in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Paul Kengor's daughters were nearly in the line of fire. Here he is to recount that story. Pray for us, I will call you later. That was a text message that we received from our 16-year-old daughter at 10.16 a.m. on Saturday morning, October 27, 2018. As my wife and I drove toward Pittsburgh Strip District in downtown Pittsburgh. My wife called my daughter immediately. Are you okay? Were you in an accident? In a hushed voice, my daughter explained that she, our second daughter, and three friends, along with an adult friend of ours named Susie, were hiding in their van across the street from the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh's Squirrel Hill section. They were there for a Saturday morning retreat at a house across the street. They had arrived at 9.55 a.m. They had initially stopped the van directly across from the synagogue on Shady Avenue, which would have been straight in the line of fire between the police and the shooter. It's going to be at 5898 Wilkins Avenue, Tree of Life Synagogue. 3480, you They were planning to hop out and walk to the house. Mercifully, the driver, Susie, decided almost on a whim, a gut feel, she later conceded, to find a parking spot so she could walk the girls inside. Just as she moved to a spot a little further away, police cars began flying in. Okay, um, initial reports of an active shooter, one down in the Tree of Life Synagogue Zone 4. As a girl struggled to assess the chaos, the police parked sideways in order to use their vehicles as shields for the shootout. The street was instantly closed off. Susie told the girls not to get out. They all sat on the floor of the van, ducked and listened and prayed and worried. We received that text message about 20 minutes later. Shortly after we talked to her daughter, Susie and the girls made a careful decision to drive a little further away. Susie did a U-turn and went down the street just enough to pull into a driveway that allowed them to put a few houses and buildings of separation between them, the synagogue and the gunfire. After nearly an hour of chaos and confusion, the girls decided to abandon the van and make a run for it. uh, 315 base, we are pinned down by gunfire. He's firing out of the front of the building with an automatic weapon. Copy. Can't get any closer, we're under fire. They dashed across backyards and over fences to meet a relative of Susie who lived down the street. They could hear gunfire in the background. They met Susie's relative in his getaway car. They escaped. They got free. It was a scary day. It was also evil, an act of evil against our beloved Jewish brothers and sisters at a peaceful Saturday worship service. And while my loved ones were okay, the same cannot be said of everyone in that synagogue, 11 of which were murdered. I've since returned to that spot about a half a dozen times since last October 27th. In fact, I'll be there again this Saturday with the girls. It's never the same. Each time I go, I pause to look at the synagogue and say a prayer. 
I've since talked to other parents who had dropped off their girls at the retreat center that Saturday morning. One of them, a dad, marvels at the conversation that he and his wife had had that fateful morning. His wife typically dropped off his daughter and then sat in the car in the drop-off lane at the Tree of Life Synagogue, where she waited and worked on her laptop for a couple of hours. On this morning, though, the dad, again, another strange gut feel, oddly decided that he wanted to drive his daughter to the retreat center. He wasn't sure why, but he just tried to convince his wife to stay at home. He prevailed and talked her into it. She stayed at home. For some strange reason, they made that decision. Had they not, his wife might have been one of the first ones shot that morning. The suspect in the shooting is in custody. We have multiple casualties inside the synagogue. We have three officers who have been shot. And at this time, we have no more information because we are still clearing the building and trying to figure out uh, if, the, if the situation is safe, if there are any more threats inside the building. So that's all we have at this point. They were very lucky. So were we. My wife and I, of course, are so grateful that our loved ones didn't get caught in the crossfire. My kids had only one scrape, one of the girls, from hopping over a fence. And yet I imagine that many of the families of the 11 dead asked why God hadn't spared their loved ones. I agree. That's one of those timeless questions that we all ask. It's a question that believers of all stripes, and the Jewish people in particular, have asked since literally the time of Job. It's a mystery why some leave this world in a violent way, seemingly prematurely, while others seem to stay longer in this valley of tears, and if and when certain people are protected and others are or aren't. I have no answer there, though I know that God is the author of life and God wasn't the one pulling the trigger in that synagogue. The evil that transpired there was not an act of benevolence by a loving God. I also feel confident in saying this, the true tree of life is not an earthly one, but an eternal one. This world, unlike the heavenly paradise we seek, is full of sin and rot. The trees in this world, they decay and they die. Eternal life and perfect bliss are not reachable in this world. They come in the next. Now that might be small consolation, I understand, to the grieving and hurting loved ones of the Tree of Life Synagogue, but honestly, I think it's truly the best that we can say. And we've been listening to Paul Kengor, who teaches at nearby Grove City College. And by the way, that's where our own Robbie Davis went to college, and thus the connection. And what a story he told indeed. And Paul put it so beautifully. Why do some leave this world prematurely at the hands of of a madman and a mass murderer like this while others don't. And I don't think Paul could have put it better, and I don't think there's a better way to put it. It's a mystery. But one thing's for sure, God didn't author uh, that choice that that young person made, that person made shooting all those folks. And then the question becomes, what choice did we make as it relates to stopping them? And in the end, well, we can't put ourselves in God's, in God's mind. And it's a mystery. Paul Kengor's story, his family's story of a tragedy in Pennsylvania that still lives with him today and will live on with him forever. This is Our American Stories.
Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And this next story comes to us from John Elfner. And he's a U.S. history teacher at Homewood Flossmoor High School, and that's in the south suburbs of Chicago. John is beginning his 20th year of teaching high school students, and that's no duck walk, folks, if you've raised them, if you've been around them, but it's also a joy. And today, he enlightens the rest of us. Friday night and we're in the south suburbs of Chicago. We're at a high school football game. The stands are packed, the students and fans are excited for the opening kickoff, and the marching band is playing the school's fight song. On the field is coach Ted Venegas. Hey coach, who's your favorite president? Teddy Roosevelt's my favorite president because he saved football. That may seem like an odd claim, but Venegas is not just a coach, he's also a U.S. history teacher. and He knows the intimate connection between Teddy Roosevelt and football. You see, the modern game of football is nothing like the game in the early 1900s. The early game of football is a lot more like violent rugby than the game that we know today. You can see some of the early games on film, including what claims to be the first recorded game between Princeton and Yale. It's not much to look at. Just 11 burly guys wearing very little protective equipment slamming into each other on the line. On most plays, the ball carrier runs into the scrum, is attacked by the defense, which itself is being mauled by big offensive linemen, typically ending up in a very large pile of very large young men. Presuming no one is maimed on the play, all 22 players get up, no huddle, line up again, and set hike on to the next play. Historian Brian Ingracia, author of the book The Rise of the Gridiron University, Higher Education's Uneasy Alliance with Big-Time Football, talks about the early game of football. College athletes have figured out ways to win very, very efficiently, but also in ways that are very kind of boring and also very potentially dangerous. So you've got the flying wedge, which is a play where you've got, uh, you know, one player with a number of other players in front of him running down the field. And this can be very, very dangerous. And they used to refer to this kind of football for the forward pass as kind of five yards in a cloud of dust. And passing the ball was illegal. Every play was a running play. On most plays, the ball carrier ran straight through the middle of the line. Players and coaches began to figure out more effective ways to physically move bodies around to get their ball carrier through that line. But with limited rules and little regard for safety, the game got really rough. There's a very famous case in 1897 where a University of Georgia player named Richard Vaughn Gammon, he actually died in a game played in Atlanta between the University of Georgia and the University of Virginia. And there's a moment in 1897 where the state of Georgia came very, very close actually to outlawing college football. Not surprisingly, this collision of 22 players, play after play, led to frequent injuries, some of them fatal. Young men are dying on the field. Oftentimes when they are, it's traumatic brain injuries, concussions, spinal injuries. Sometimes they're, they die immediately on the field. Sometimes they might get injured and they might not die for another week or two weeks. There's this growing concern around the country that this game has become very violent and it's killing these young men. And over the next decade, things got worse. In 1905 alone, 18 high school and college football players died while playing the game. Dozens of others were severely injured, and the rest were just happy to escape with their lives. The violence of the game was unacceptable. With America's young men dying and being maimed on the field, football became something that major universities could no longer tolerate or sponsor. Both Yale and Harvard were considering canceling their programs. But then an unlikely savior stepped in, President Teddy Roosevelt. Roosevelt was a fan of football. He saw it as a way to season young men. Roosevelt had wanted to play when he was a Harvard man, but his asthma kept him from being involved. 
You said it, football. In life, as in a football game, the principle to follow is hit the line hard. Don't foul and don't shirk, but hit the line hard. His toughness is legendary. Teddy popularized the term the strenuous life. He describes what he meant by that in an 1899 speech. I wish to preach not the doctrine of ignoble ease, but the doctrine of the strenuous life, the life of toil and effort, of labor and strife. I preach to you then, my countrymen, that our country calls not for the life of ease, but for the life of strenuous endeavor. And this was more than just talk. The stories of T.R. living the strenuous life are nearly endless, but here are a few of my favorites. First, he maintained a strict physical regimen, going so far as to box with a sparring partner in the White House. He referred to boxing as a condensed way to fit exercise into his busy schedule. And T.R. was no boxing hack. He had boxed during college on Harvard's intramural boxing squad. But his pursuit of boxing into his 50s ultimately cost him. In one sparring session, he sustained an injury to his left eye and lost his vision in that eye permanently. Accordingly, I thought it better to acknowledge that I had become an elderly man and would have to stop boxing. I then took up jujitsu for a few years. A second presidential physical pastime Roosevelt enjoyed was called single stick. It is what it sounds like. Two opponents armed with a single stick whack each other with that single stick. Roosevelt and his good friend, Major General Leonard Wood, regularly engaged in this practice. In a nod to the danger of the game, they would wrap pillows around themselves for protection. But that didn't always do the trick. One time, Roosevelt got whacked in the head by General Wood's stick and suffered a large bump in a black eye. No problem for Roosevelt, it was merely evidence of his living the strenuous life. By the way, care to guess which sport Wood played in college? Yup, football. But I saved the best story for last, and I'm going to let another figure that knows a lot about leadership in sports, just like Roosevelt, tell the story. Pat Williams is the vice president of the Orlando Magic, and has written a book on leadership called 21 Great Leaders. He tells my favorite story about TR. Teddy Roosevelt was getting ready to go over to the big auditorium to deliver a speech when he was running for president again in the Bull Moose Party. And when he came out to get in the car, uh, a man who had been trailing him for weeks and months finally caught up with him and fired a shot right into his chest. Well, Roosevelt's speech was in his uh, vest pocket, uh, along with his glasses case, and it, it dulled the blow of the bullet. And they were ro- wanting to rush him to the hospital. Roosevelt says, Take me to the auditorium! And the next thing you know, Roosevelt is standing up at the podium telling the audience exactly what just happened. I've just been shot. The bullet is in me now, so I cannot make a very long speech, but I will try my best. The crowd thought he was joking, but then Roosevelt pulled back his jacket to reveal the blood all over his white shirt. And then he exclaimed, It takes more than that to kill a bull moose. When he telegrammed his wife to assure her that he was okay, he described the bullet wound as, Trivial. Trivial? Are any bullet wounds trivial? Well, maybe when you're Teddy Roosevelt living this strenuous life, some of them are. So what does all this have to do with football? Roosevelt saw football as a way to develop young men in this strenuous life. I believe in rough games and in rough manly sports. I do not feel any particular sympathy for the person who gets battered about a good deal, so long as it is not fatal. But not everyone agreed. 
By 1905, the Prohibition movement was gaining momentum. No, not the Prohibition of Alcohol, the Prohibition of Football. John J. Miller, author of the book The Big Scrum, How Teddy Roosevelt Saved Football, talks about this movement. A lot of people are becoming concerned about the brutality and violence of the sport. They're looking at this and they're, they're, they're saying this is, this is unacceptable in advanced societies like our own. Gladiatorial combat in the Roman amphitheater. And we are not barbarians in 20th century America. Therefore, we should banish football. Newspapers start to write articles about the evils of football. And a Cincinnati newspaper goes so far as to publish a cartoon titled The Grim Reaper Smiles on the Goalpost, which depicts the angel of death reclining on the crossbar overlooking a pile of bodies on the field. The people who believed this created a social and political movement. They were led by the president of Harvard University, Charles W. Eliot. Uh, but others joined this movement as well. Lots of people in higher education were involved. Newspapers were involved. Muckraking journalists were involved. And this movement is no idle threat. Three major programs, Columbia, Duke, and Northwestern, cancel their program. Harvard is on the verge of doing the same, with Harvard's president referring to the game as more brutalizing than prize fighting, cockfighting, or bullfighting. Even Roosevelt's own Secretary of War, William Howard Taft, a future president, threatens to dismiss any West Point football players if they engage in too much violence on the football field. Some schools even replace football with rugby because rugby was less brutal. So football is facing a genuine crisis of extinction. Could football survive the growing movement to ban the sport? And when we come back, we'll find out the answer to that question. And we're listening to one of our contributors. And he's a U.S. history teacher at Homewood Flossmoor High School in the south suburb of Chicago. And that's John Elfner doing the storytelling. When we come back, Roosevelt saves football? More of that story here on Our American Stories. And by the way, to sign up for all that we do, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. Give us your email address and we'll send you our five best stories each week. Our newsletter, our weekly newsletter. Again, that's OurAmericanNetwork.org. More on Teddy Roosevelt and football with John Elfner after these messages. This is Our American Stories, and we return to John Elfner and the improbable story of a president and the survival of one of our great national sports. So in 1905, just as Roosevelt was beginning his second term, he saw that football was facing a truly existential crisis. Major schools had already canceled their programs, and the Ivy Leagues, most notably Harvard, were considering canceling their programs. I just want to take a moment to emphasize how important it is that the president of Harvard, Charles Eliot, wanted to cancel his football program. It may be hard to imagine today, but Harvard was once the premier college football program in the country. It was also one of the first, playing its inaugural game in 1873. 
They won the national championship in 1890, 1898, and again in 1899. And Harvard routinely saw their players named as first-team All-American selections. Because professional football was yet to be well-established, the college game received enormous national attention, and Harvard was at the top of that list. When Harvard and Yale played each year, it was simply known as the game. And just two years earlier, Harvard had built a massive stadium at the cost of $200,000. In today's money, that would be about $5 million. Despite that enormous expense, the president of Harvard was eager to ban the game because of its brutality. And if Harvard, one of the oldest and most successful programs in the nation, was to banish its program, many schools would follow, perhaps leading to the end of football entirely. But this is a problem for Roosevelt. Roosevelt believed that college football, brutal as it was, provided a training ground for our nation's young men. John J. Miller explains. It's not merely entertaining, but he thinks it's a positive social good because he thinks sports turn boys into men. They teach things that you cannot learn in classrooms or from books. They teach that when you get knocked down, you should stand back up. They teach you how to win with dignity, how to lose with grace, how to work with teammates, how to take orders from a coach. They teach you so many things you cannot learn in other ways. Roosevelt firmly believed that developing these qualities as young men would serve these men if they were ever called to war. Pat Williams explains. Truly, I think he saw football as a battle without guns, but I think he also saw that it developed leaders, that it it developed physical and mental toughness in young men. And Roosevelt knew more than a little about battle. In 1898, when the Spanish-American War broke out in Cuba, Roosevelt was serving as Assistant Secretary to the Navy, perhaps the safest government post in all of Washington, D.C. But Roosevelt didn't want to be in Washington during the war. He quit his cushy post and founded, funded, and recruited his own military unit called the Rough Riders. He craved action, and he wanted to be in the middle of the action. And so when the Spanish-American War broke out, there was nothing that was going to stop T.R. from getting involved. Uh, He raised a troop of men, you know, who he had known for years, some of them from his time out west. And he put this group together, and uh, down they went to Cuba. And uh, he was part of that invasion up to San Juan Hill and was in the middle of the action. There were real bullets being fired, and T.R. was right in the middle of it. Any guesses on what past experience many of those Rough Riders had that qualified them for service in the eyes of Roosevelt? That's right. Football. So Roosevelt had experienced war, and by living the strenuous life before his time with the Rough Riders, he was ready for it. But how would America's young men be prepared for the next war? Roosevelt believed football was a place where the skills needed in war, teamwork, leadership, overcoming obstacles, and even conquering territory could be developed. So here's Roosevelt's challenge. He loves the idea of the strenuous life, not only for himself, but for young men. Football is a part of that and something he supports. But many major universities are getting ready to drop their programs, and his own son had just had his nose broken in a game. What should he do? Well, in true Rooseveltian fashion, TR used his bully pulpit to call the presidents and coaches of the Ivy League schools together to change the rules. Here again is Brian Ingracia. In October of 1905, 
He calls in Walter Camp, as well as a number of other individuals associated with Harvard and Yale and Princeton. They show up at the White House, they meet for about two hours, and they essentially come out there with an agreement. We are going to do something to clean up football. So that's it, right? Roosevelt saved football. Wrong. After the meeting, nothing happened until a pair of highly publicized tragedies occurred on the football field. Right around Thanksgiving, there are two really important games. There's a game between New York University and Union College in which one of the players for Union College, Harold Moore, actually dies from injuries sustained within the game. And on the same day, there's there's a broken nose on a late tackle uh, in the Harvard-Yale game. And it's kind of those two events on the same day that really, really push university leaders when they say, we need to do something about this. And they do. They gather together and start to make major rule changes. And these are the same men that Roosevelt gathered at the White House just months earlier who initially didn't want to make those changes. Roosevelt went so far as to send representatives to the meeting to oversee those changes. The single most important rule change of 1906 was the legalization of the forward pass. The reason why they decided to legalize the forward pass, I think it's going to be safer. They said it's going to open up the field of play. Players are going to be spread out more on the field than they currently are. There's going to be fewer bad tackles. And it worked. Fatalities reduced year after year and made the game safer for the players and also made the game more exciting. Deaths on the field started to drop. The claims of gladiatorial brutality made by the prohibition of football movement were undercut by many of the rule changes. Not only is the forward pass added, but other rules are introduced to make the game less brutal. They made the personal foul a heavily penalized infraction. They created uh, a neutral zone at the line of scrimmage. And they were all done with the idea toward improving player safety. And the threats to football's existence receded. Schools like Harvard, whose president was a leader of the prohibition of football movement, abandoned the goal of canceling their football program. And the rules committee that changed the rules of football later became what we know today as the NCAA. They continued to tinker with the rules of football over time, making it more and more safe until the time came when a death in football was regarded as a freak accident. So did Teddy Roosevelt really save football? Roosevelt certainly made saving football from the prohibition of football movement a national issue. And without that, who knows how effective that movement might have become. Banning a very popular national sport seems unlikely, but banning the sale and manufacture of alcohol seems far more unlikely, and look where that ended up. Regardless, Coach Ted Venegas still ranks Roosevelt as his favorite president, especially when he has calling a pass play. Let's go Hero Vegas Sky on one. Set, hike. Quarterback drops back, he rolls right. The man down the middle, he sees him, passes up, it's caught, shot for the touchdown. And that's why Teddy Roosevelt's my favorite president. And that pass couldn't happen without Teddy Roosevelt. So like I said, Teddy Roosevelt saved football. And great job on that. And that's John Elfner, and he's a U.S. history teacher at Homewood Flossmoor High School. And that's in the south suburbs of Chicago. And John's been teaching history for 20 years to high school students. And my dad was a lifer as a high school history teacher, basketball coach, ended up being a superintendent of schools. But his favorite thing to do was to be on the court with the boys or taking a road trip and seeing American action in history and making it come alive. So I'm grateful to a dad who I got to do that with, field trips to Gettysburg and Vicksburg and the rest. And by the way, that was John Miller's voice you heard, and he's a journalism teacher at Hillsdale College, which sponsors our This Days in History. And by the way, football's ready for another big rule change. 
A lot of people think changing the zone defense will end all these brain injuries. We'll see if that happens, but it's the zone defense more than likely that's the cause of so many of these brain injuries. But what a story this is. The President of the United States intervening to save a game he thought prepared boys for war. Teddy Roosevelt's story, football story, here on Our American Story. This is Our American Stories, and in this next story, we're going to take a look back at one of the best and weirdest stand-ups to ever hold a mic. And by the way, we've done a lot on comedians. We were just talking about it, and Carol Burnett, Lucille Ball, George Carlin, Gary Shandling, Robin Williams, Steve Martins was just terrific, real insights into the life of a stand-up. Joan Rivers, what a life. Johnny Carson, just terrific stuff there. And... My personal favorite, Don Rickles, whose act would be against the law today. And we did an hour on his life and what a life it was. And now, Mitch Hedberg. He was an old-fashioned one-line spitter like Henny Youngman and an observer of the foibles of everyday life like Jerry Seinfeld. But the simplicity of his format obscured the qualities of his work that made him a legend. Quote, every book is a children's book if the kid can read. It's just one good example of classic Edberg writing. Mitch never tried to speak about issues as most comics do. Instead, he was telling jokes about, well, ducks. Here's Mitch's story. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm extremely proud to present Mitch Hedberg. Mitch Hedberg was one of the greatest comedians of all time. He might not be a household name like George Carlin or Louis C.K., but he'll always be remembered for his signature style and unconventional offbeat delivery. Yeah, I got got to write these jokes. So uh, I sit at the hotel at night, I think of something that's funny, then I go get a pen and I write it down. Or if the pen's too far away, I have to convince myself that what I thought of ain't funny. His comedy typically featured short, sometimes one-line jokes, mixed with absurd elements and non-sequiturs. I've always wanted to have a suitcase handcuffed to my wrist. All right. My friend asked me if I wanted a frozen banana. I said no, but I want a regular banana later, so yeah. I'm out to dinner with a group of friends and someone offers to pay for the check. I immediately reach for my wallet because inside is a note that says, say thanks. (laughs) 
I used to do drugs. I still do, but I used to too. Mitch displayed a visible delight in being on stage, and he embodied a warmth that would draw his audience into his world. I'm against picketing, but I don't know how to show it. He earned a cult following and the admiration of his fellow comics. I order the club sandwich all the time, and I'm not even a member, man. I don't know how I get away with it. I like my sandwiches with three pieces of bread. So do I. Well, let's form a club. Okay, but we need some more stipulations. Yes, we do. Instead of the cutting the sandwich once, let's cut it again. Hell yeah, four triangles. We'll position them into a circle. And in the middle, we will dump chips. Or potato salad. Cool. I can deal with that. Let me ask you a question. How you feel about frilly toothpicks? I'm for them. Well, this club is formed then. I like to take a toothpick and throw it in the forest and say, you're home. Born in St. Paul, Minnesota, Hedberg moved out when he turned 18 to pursue his dream of being a stand-up comic. You know, when it comes to racism, people say, I don't care if they're black, white, purple, or green. Oh, hold on now. Purple or green? You got to draw the line somewhere. <laughs> to hell with purple people. <laughs> Unless they're suffocating. <laughs> then help them. He lived out of his car and honed his routine and built his reputation playing comedy clubs across the country throughout the 1990s. Here's fellow comedians Shard Hogan, Doug Stanhope, Dave Attell, and Chuck Savage. The unique thing about Mitch is that he didn't do a lot of uh, typical setup type, you know, joke jokes. It was just so much different than anything anyone was doing or is doing today. Here was a guy standing on stage with his eyes closed, just kind of doing this, you know, uh, thoughts, basically, that were like hilarious and so out there. And as a comic, you kind of always know where the joke's going, like, you know, with his stuff, it was always, it blew me away. A good comic says funny things, and a great comic says things funny. And that's what Mitch did, he said things funny. When someone tries to hand me out a flyer, it's kind of like they're saying, here, you throw this away. It's weird to hear that a guy who made his living performing in front of people was terrified of doing so. But Mitch Hedberg had severe stage fright. And so the prototypical Hedberg performance involved dark sunglasses, long hair draped over his eyes, and set-long staring contests with the floor. And finally, Mitch would bookend this list by completely closing his eyes to keep the crowd at an even safer distance. You know on TV, when they have a fishing show on TV, they catch the fish, but they let it go. They don't want to eat the fish, but they do want to make it late for something. <laughs> Where were you? I got caught. <laughs> Liar, let me see the inside of your lip. Every comedian messes up a joke on occasion but they usually ignore their flubs, not Hedberg. He tended to ruminate on his failed jokes, criticizing them on stage at a level few comedians could ever get away with. Dogs are forever in the push-up position. <laughs> uh, 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 
That joke, that joke is dumb, I'm aware of that. Ad, uh, Advil has a candy coating, it's delicious. And it says right on the bottle, do not have more than two. Well then do not put a candy coating around it. For I cannot help myself. Let me have 10 Advil. Do you got a, I got a sweet tooth. <laughs> I think I screwed part of that joke up. I, I apologize about that. Deadspin likened it to him breaking the fourth wall. In an odd way, it made him even more endearing and relatable to his fans. I find that Duck's opinion of me is very much influenced over whether or not I have bread. You know that, Petra's Farm Bread, that stuff is fancy, man. It's wrapped twice. You open it, and it still ain't open. That's why I don't buy it. I don't need another step between me and toast. Hedberg's innovative onstage persona brought him to the doorstep of fame, and he soon earned top billing. At the 1998 Montreal Comedy Festival, Mitch wowed the crowd. I got a king-sized bed. I don't know any kings, but if one came over, I guess he'd be comfortable. <laughs> oh, you're a king, you say. Well, you won't believe what I have in store for you. It's to your exact specifications. When I was a boy, I laid in my twin-sized bed and wondered where my brother was. All right. I had a cold sore. I put some Carmex on it. Carmex is supposed to heal cold sores. I don't know if it does, but it will make them shiny and more noticeable. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Please welcome Mitch Hedberg. Mitch! As an encore, Mitch booked the ultimate stand-up gig, a spot on The Late Show with David Letterman. I got a V-neck shirt on, man. I like V-necks, you know? And I hate turtlenecks, man. A turtleneck is like being strangled by a really weak guy. <laughs> All day. <laughs> this is so unusual to hear so much applause. I think you're trying to trick me and make me think I'm done. Letterman wanted him back right away. A rare request for stand-up comics. By the end of 1998, Mitch landed a half-million-dollar TV deal with Fox and starred in his own special for Comedy Central. He was even dubbed the next Seinfeld by Time magazine. This shirt is dry clean only, which means it's dirty. By the early 2000s, Mitch was performing 300 shows a year and sometimes three in a night. Hedberg never passed on a job even at the peak of his fame because he had been rejected so many times in his career that he felt if he didn't say yes he might not be given the opportunity to perform again. I went, to a, I went to a pizzeria, I ordered a slice of pizza. The dude gave me the smallest slice possible. If the pizza was a pie chart for what people would do if they found a million dollars, this dude gave me the donate to charity slice. <laughs> I would like to exchange this for the keep it. Ultimately, Mitch's drive to succeed and his drug use, most notably heroin, took him over the edge. This morning, we've learned a popular comic from St. Paul has passed away. Mitch Hedberg died in a hotel room in New Jersey on Wednesday. 
Hedberg died of a massive heart attack caused by drug abuse on March 29, 2005. Mitch was not the next Seinfeld, but he never needed to be. He was Mitch Hedberg. As a comedian, you have to start the show strong and you have to end the show strong. Those are the two key elements. You can't be like pancakes, all exciting at first, but then by the end, you're sick of them. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanStories.com. That's OurAmericanStories.com. We're about to hear the story of a bright, young, successful entrepreneur who recently quit his day job to follow his American dream. His name is Rich Benoit, and he's the star of Rich Rebuilds, a popular YouTube channel focused around his Tesla repair shop called the Electrified Garage, which is near Salem, Massachusetts. So far, it's the only garage of its kind, mostly because Tesla doesn't want anyone working on their electric vehicles. While not a title that our guest embraces, Rich has become known by many as the Tesla Hacker because of his passion and his ability to do what others have not. You know, I've always loved to take things apart. You know, a lot of kids are kind of naturally curious about things, like how the world works. You know, you see all these videos on the internet about, you know, kids breaking things or like climbing up on things, just to get a feel for the world around them, kind of figuring out, you know, how do I function here? How does this work? What does this taste like? Kids putting things in their mouths. For me, I had this infatuation with just taking things apart, just seeing like, how does this thing work? And luckily for me, I was fortunate enough to have uh, you know an, an engineer father that had all kinds of really cool stuff laying around. I mean, he had circuits, diodes, like LEDs, and he was an engineer. So it, it was really, really fun to see all those things in motion. Just like really feeding like my natural curiosity, like, hey, how does a watch work? Like, it's so amazing how these small little like uh, dials and levers and and anchors and gears and teeth that are all synchronized that keep the time and not only that but it's self-sufficient when you move you know these bands wind and unwind and it keeps the the motion of the clock going and it just that just blew my mind so i would just take things like that apart and you know he'd yell at me over and over again i keep taking them apart and it kind of led into bigger things like i'm like hey i want to take the stereo apart now i want to take my my aunt's VCR apart. Like I just had a natural curiosity for, you know, just how everything worked around me. I, I think I lost a lot of that touch in high school, unfortunately. In high school, it was mostly just based on work, you know, getting my work done. Uh, I had recently moved from my mother's house to my father's house. 
and that was kind of like a hard transition for me. So that a lot of that, a lot of that, um, I guess curiosity and, and, and creativity was kind of lost in just me being like, you know, who am I trying to figure stuff out and, you know, just become a functioning adult uh, as, as to where I was. So I went through high school. I joined like the typical things like the physics club and like the science club and the math team and science team and all different teams to try to figure my way out and as to what I wanted to do. Like, you know, what do I want to be when I when I get older? Like, do I want to take stuff apart forever? Do I want to be a mechanic? Because I knew that I loved cars at that point. You know, slowly it uh, it kind of went into the IT field. And I figured to myself, you know, I want to be an IT. I want to fix computers because it was along those same lines of my natural you know, curiosity about things like how stuff works, like how do computers work, how do computers process things at millions of calculations per second. And I was taking computers apart and I was like, this is must be a natural thing for me. Maybe I want to work on computers now. So I, I got into the IT field and um, it was, that was fun. That was my mission. That was my MO. One day, you know, as you know, I, I still, I still love cars. One of my friends said, he, listen, you know, I know you love IT. I know you love cars and stuff. I've got this gig at Tesla, uh, this new electric car company. I got to bring one of these things over for you to see. And I said, okay, you know, I'll take a look at it. You know, I'm a gas guy. I love my Corvette. I have like all my, my toys and stuff. Was never even really an electric guy. And he came over and I saw this car and he took me for a ride and I said, I got to have this thing. This thing is absolutely incredible. And at the time, I really wasn't making a lot of money. <laughs> so when he told me the price tag of it, He's like, yeah, that's going to run you about, uh, you know, $100,000. So I said, you know what, forget that. I, I, I don't have the, that kind of funds to, to, to invest in, in that kind of um, idea. But that bug stuck with me. So I said to myself, you know what, I got to find one of these things, man. I, you know, I found one on the Internet. Um, it was like 15 grand. I'm like, well, 15 grand versus $100,000. I could do that. I mean, yeah, it was underwater. You know, it, it was a flood car. But, you know, I could fix that. Why not? Probably as easy as, you know, sticking your cell phone in the bag of rice. Then when you drop your phone in, in the toilet sometimes, um, you stick it in the bag of rice and then you're good to go. I figured a car can be much different, right? So uh, I did that, bought it, and I spent about six months restoring it, like removing all the electronics. I had, by the way, I have no electronic background whatsoever. It's just the background of me taking the stuff apart of my dad's house. That's really all I had. And slowly over the course of, of several months, I... I slowly got it back on the road. And as a result of that, I also started a, a YouTube channel where I would kind of just document what I was doing. I would document, you know, me taking buckets of water out of the car. I document me removing the seats. I document removing the motor, etc. And it, it kind of manifested into this huge thing where people actually legitimately enjoyed the story. They enjoyed the storytelling. They enjoyed the adventure of it all. And it grew into a, a, a larger YouTube channel, and you know now there's uh, you know there's several hundred thousand people that actually wait each week to see what I'm going to come up with next, and it, it's kind of it's kind of cool. And it's you know things have progressed from there, and I ended up opening up a shop where we service and repair electric vehicles. So uh, as a result of the channel, you know a, a couple guys that uh, former Tesla employees and a, and a former friend of mine, we started a company where we service and repair electric vehicles. So now it kind of went from, you know, it me being just a kid that used to take stuff apart because I had a natural curiosity for things, to me being a car lover, to realizing there was a, an untapped market for third-party electric vehicle repair. And now 
I have a YouTube channel and there's a company that exists where people come to to get their EV service and services like that don't really exist now because EVs are still new. There's only like a couple million on the road as opposed to hundreds of millions for gas powered cars. And it's it's like a thing now. It's like a it went from just an idea of me being a kid to, to feeding my natural curiosity to, to having a legitimate business. And you've been listening to Rich Benoit. And my goodness, satisfying his lifetime curiosity ever since he was a kid, taking stuff apart on general principle. Will I take stuff apart forever? He asked himself. He got bored in high school. The curiosity almost drilled out of him. But he regained it, became an IT pro. And the next thing you know, he's owning and running the electrified garage. Rich Benoit's story continues here on Our American Stories. And we continue with our American stories and with Rich Benoit, who quit his job in IT after starting a successful YouTube channel and opening a garage that specializes in repairing and salvaging Tesla vehicles. It's a unique view into the life of a young entrepreneur and actually a young hobbyist who has already achieved much success in the early stages of running his business. I want to be like natural and as wholesome as I can because a lot of people just they have this like people don't honestly I'm just a regular guy like I'm not I'm not a multi-millionaire I have a passion for cars and in my driveway it looks like I run a, a high-end used car dealership but in reality they're just broken cars that I purchased and I fixed for really cheap and now I have a bunch of really nice looking cars you know so it's 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 pretty cool. All people are just like, "Oh, who's this guy? I think he is." I'm like, in reality, the you know a, a guy could drive by in like a, a diesel, like a 3500 diesel pickup, and that's a ninety thousand dollar truck easily, ninety to a hundred, depending on how you spec it out. And it looks like I have half a million dollars in the driveway, but in reality, all my cars combined are likely less than what he paid for his one truck. So you know, but there, there's a lot of value in 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 recycling. And just kind of, you know, not not throwing stuff away. I mean, if, if you have something that's broken, then fix it. Don't just throw it away. You know, we're we're a society nowadays where things are things are so inexpensive now that we think, oh, if something breaks, the only way to do it is to throw it away. And a lot of companies are saying, push that and drive that home. Like, yes, yes, throw it away, buy a new one from us, and they get more. But I'm part of the methodology that, as society, why should we why should we throw stuff away when it's perfectly usable? Tesla and I have this weird relationship now where um, there's this meme online where it's called a hate shake and Tiger Woods was congratulating someone that won the tournament and he he stuck his hand out to shake his hand and the look on his face was just pure anger <laughs> but it was a mutual respect like he was shaking his hand out of respect but his face and his body language said completely otherwise but a while back traction started gaining on the whole Tesla thing and one thing led to another, and I ended up fixing the car that I bought uh, a long time ago. 
And one of the struggles that I faced was that Tesla wasn't very, they were very reluctant to give me parts for the cars because they thought to themselves, wait a minute, what are you doing? Like no one could fix these cars but us. So, so what do you think you're doing here? Like this isn't, this isn't for you. You know, this, this isn't, this isn't your battle here. Like we'll, we'll be the ones to take care of these cars. These cars are high end. They're electric. You've never worked in an electric car before. You have no credentials to do so. Therefore, this is our vehicle. We have every right to, to service the cars and you don't. So when I was building mine, I asked for parts, basically so I kind of hung up the phone and said no. And I said, well, what can I do? And they'd suggested, well, what you could do is you could buy a new one and stop wasting your time. So that, to me, that wasn't an answer, obviously. And um, that really resonated with me because I'm not, I was never used to that. I was never used to a uh, manufacturer really treating someone like that. I've owned BMWs before. Uh, I owned a, a Chrysler 300 before. And they, those were all prior accident vehicles. And I said, hey, my car is broken. Can you take care of this? And they said, sure, we'll happily sell you whatever part you need. Uh, because we're a manufacturer and we will happily take your money. But Tesla had this almost, I want to say, elitist attitude where it was like, well, we're too good and you're not smart enough to do this and therefore it's not worth our time selling you anything. And it was a really weird, really, really weird attitude and I, I didn't, it was it was so strange to me. And like since then, I, I knew to myself, you know what, it doesn't matter. I have to fix this car and I have to show the world that I can do it and, and I ended up doing it. So I went to Tesla one day to get a part. There's a guy behind the counter and I was like, hey, I need this part. And he's like, well, I can't sell it to you because your car is salvage. And salvage means, you know, it was a prior insurance write-off where the car was no longer roadworthy. He said, well, I, I can't sell it to you because I look up your VIN number and this car was in a prior accident and I, I can't help you with that. And I said, well, why not? Does any other company will happily sell me this stuff? He's like, well, I just, I just can't. It's, it's our policy. So I said, well, you know, this company is all about sustainability and being green electric vehicles, so why don't you want these cars back on the road? You know, you want these cars, these $100,000 cars where people spent thousands of engineering hours for it to rot into in a field, and I could literally fix this car with my eyes closed, and they, it didn't really matter. He sent me packing, and his name was Chris, I, I always remember that. And I, um, a few months later, I went to an electric vehicle event, and I saw Chris there, the same guy that told me no, he was at the event and I'm like, hey, what's up, buddy? And, you know, we kind of started talking and he said, hey, you know what? Um, I don't work for Tesla and I want to apologize for treating you that way. I didn't mean to do that. Those are company rules and I'm sorry. And I said, hey, don't even worry about it, man. I said, well, what do you, what do you, what do you know at, at Tesla? Like, what do you, what did you do there? And he said he was in parts and he, he did a lot of really cool stuff there. And I said, well, let's, let's do something together because I had a YouTube channel and he had a company called EV Tuning where he would kind of sell parts for EVs. And I said, well, how about we do this? How about I'll mention your company in exchange for parts? So he had a, a lot of really cool access to different parts that Tesla wouldn't sell. And we started facilitating a relationship from there. And as the channel started growing and growing and growing, people started saying, hey, well, can you fix my car now? Since you fix your own. And Chris was doing a lot of uh, side jobs as well fixing customer cars and his private time and I said Chris let's let's do something like how about we start our own company where we fix these things because it seems like there's a market to repair electric vehicles that people haven't really tapped into as yet and he was all for it he said let's just go for it and we that's what we did we we started electrified garage and um, that was an adventure in itself we, we determined we're going to 
go ahead and start a company where we service and repair electric vehicles that no one's ever really done before because it was electric vehicles are so new and there's so few on the road and logic dictates that they don't need service and repair so we're like what are we even doing this is this is ter- literally terrifying you know we don't know whether it's going to work out or not we decided you know let's go for it and you know i was using very different means of marketing because the, the my youtube channel started getting so big that i was the youtube channel was a driving force behind the company and this is such a rare you know strange world we live in because so many people are used to spending advertising minutes on commercials and tv uh to promote a business in a shop and i'm i literally have tens of thousands of dollars worth of advertising power in my hand because of the youtube channel so i was i was using the channel to promote the garage and we opened our doors and people were just waiting we had over a thousand people come to our open house and it was just amazing it was just it was such a weird thing to translate something I was doing in my spare time, kind of hobbling around in my basement, to to like an actual job that has, you know, we have employees, we have payroll, we have taxes, and it's, it's like a real tangible thing. We're not just kind of sitting around in basements theorizing ideas. We're, we're actually doing something and changing the world in a way. It was just so, so weird to me. Such a weird thing. What's interesting is that Tesla never really said anything to me. Uh, as a matter of fact, at the open house, Tesla actually came to the open house. When I say Tesla, a lot of the local Tesla guys came to the open house because the local Tesla guys, they were local fans. They were fans of the channel, fans of what we were doing. It goes to show that there were people at Tesla that were kind of for the cause, like, hey, what you're doing is awesome. Uh, they brought a lot of employees there and they had you know, 100 test rides to help sell more Teslas. But the biggest discrepancy is myself versus Tesla corporate. Tesla corporate isn't really through with that because I guess to them it almost seems like, you know, when I call out certain things and ideas and, and, and actions that Tesla does, you know, they see it as a, as a black eye in their eyes. But, you know, I see it as me. Hey, listen, I'm trying to make you guys better. When I see something I don't agree with, you know, I'm going to call you guys out on it. And I could actually get information out there via the channel quicker than they ever could. You know, they could have an announcement and by the time it reaches up to upper management and they think about how they're gonna send that message out, I've already released five or 10 videos on it and they're kind of way behind the curve. It's just so, so weird. It's, it's such a weird thing to, to think that I went from being some guy that was dumping out water, salt water out of his car and a couple years later, I'm the owner of a company, you know, I'm the CEO of a company that that's for a market that's, you know, an emerging market. It's just really, really weird. There's a lot of responsibility, I feel, and it just feels, I don't want to say uncomfortable, but definitely, uh, definitely humbling. It's, it's crazy to think that people, there are people out there, adults, kids, whatever, that look up to me as a person to model themselves after. And, and that's kind of, um, that's, it's kind of crazy. That's kind of crazy. That kind of American, actually. It's kind of beautiful. You're listening to Rich Benoit, star of Rich Rebuilds, a popular YouTube channel. He's also the owner, the CEO of the Electrified Garage. I love that he talked about this throwaway society. Why should we throw stuff away when it's usable? And he's living that axiom out every day. Rich Benoit's story continues here on Our American Stories.
And we continue here on Our American Stories with Rich Benoit's story. And by the way, go to YouTube and just look him up and you'll just love it. It's called Rich Rebuilds and you'll just love this young man. I mean, he is everything we love about America because that is in the end that curiosity that he has. He never got into this for the title. He didn't go to fancy schools. He was just taking stuff apart. And it reminds us of our great hour we did with David McCullough talking about the Wright brothers. They were bicycle mechanics. They were hobbyists. They were playing with the idea of an airplane in flight in Kitty Hawk and in their wind tunnels at home. And what do you know? All these people with engineering degrees, all these science geniuses, and it's these two hobbyists and bicycle mechanics who get to flight first. And go to OurAmericanStories.com to hear David McCullough's terrific storytelling on the Wright Brothers. Now let's return to Rich Benoit. What a weird thing, huh? Social media is, um, you don't really realize just how powerful it is, and it's pretty wild. It's the new TV. TV's dying. Everyone's cutting the cable nowadays. I can't remember the last time I actually sat and watched a TV show. Everything's online. You download something immediately. I'm very proud of being ahead of the curve because I don't know what our success story is going to be. I know this, the odds that, you know, small businesses don't always last forever. But to know that we made our mark somewhere as the first to do something or one of the first to do something is is really all it takes for me. A lot of the things that we do nowadays, we don't realize that those things can go away in a matter of years. Remember when I was a kid and I was kind of messing around with my with my parents and my, my dad's electronics, there used to be VCR repair stores. There used to be TV repair stores. Now we literally throw TVs in the garbage. I remember back in the day when I, I bought my first 60-inch TV, 50-inch TV, I thought I was like the man. I was like, yeah, I saved up all this money to buy a 60-inch TV. And you go into people's houses and they're like, they have their regular 40 inches, like the CRT televisions, they're really big and clunky. But the technology has advanced so far and so fast that literally everyone has a flat screen TV in their house now. Everyone has a, a 30, 40, 50, 60, sometimes three or four TVs in their house because you could literally go to the store and buy one for 200 bucks. That ties back into the whole social media story where, you know, if you wanted to get your company out to the public, you used to use the yellow pages. You used to register your company with the yellow pages. You, you would call your local newspaper and you would buy advertising space on a page. And now I could pick up my phone I could say, hey, come to my shop, press upload, and I, that's a that's a marketing campaign that would be worth tens of thousands of dollars back in the day. Or, or even TV. Even you would call up and say, hey, listen, T- Mr. TV Station, hello, Channel 5. I want to run an ad at 4 o'clock in the morning for my company. Here's, here's some money. Can you run it? And then they'd run it at that time because it's not in premium, but it would still cost you a fortune. And no one would watch it. You don't know who your target demographic is. You don't know who your audience is. But nowadays, you know, you <laughs> you can get information in your hands as well as others' hands all with the, the snap of your fingers. At the shop, the Tri Garage, on a day-to-day basis, what we do is um, we live in the Northeast, so there's a lot of suspension issues with the cars. The the Model S and the Model X, the, those Teslas are unsuspectingly very heavy cars. The battery packs below the cars that the cars run on are about 12 to 1300 pounds a piece. So that's 1200, 1300 pounds of just weight just sitting there underneath the car, making for a great, you know, low center of gravity. But 
it, they're just heavy cars. So their suspensions are very prone to issues, especially in the Northeast where there's a lot of road sand and salt on the roads causing corrosion and other buildup on the suspension components. So we do a lot of suspension work, a lot of brake work, a lot of alignment stuff. A lot of the times the cars are, are, are electric vehicles are susceptible to a lot of the things that cars that are powered by gas are minus the engine components. So you still have squeaks, you still have rattles, uh, you still have computer issues, you still have glitches, you still have window regulators not working, excessive wear and tear on the cars. There's a lot of things that go wrong. Uh, a lot of the cars are similar to the gas in the sense that they have four wheels and they move when you have the accelerator pedal down. But that's where things kind of stop, where instead of a, a gas engine, you have a motor. Uh, in that motor, there's bearings that wear. You know, there's still moving parts inside an electric motor. And those things are, are serviceable parts that when things start grinding and wearing down, they can be replaced. We do some conversions as well. A customer came to us and said that um, the model tests that they have, they didn't like the performance. They didn't like the actual battery and range size. Uh, so, you know, each Tesla has their own designation for range, like how much range you get. Uh, there's there's like a, a 75 kilowatt hour car which will get you about 260 miles of range. Uh, there's cars that have 100 kilowatts that get you over 300 miles of range. And there's 60 kilowatt hour cars that gets you less than that, you know, you have 200 miles in some cases. So a customer came to us and said, hey, listen, I like my car and Tesla is not giving me much on the trade. So therefore, I want you guys to modify this car so that it's new and updated and I don't have to sell my current car. So we did that. He came to us and he had a 75 kilowatt hour car, which gives about 259 miles of range. According to him, it wasn't very fast. It was about the zero to 16, about, I want to say four seconds or so, maybe four and a half seconds. And he said he wanted it to be the fastest and the best and the baddest car that he could find. And we did that. So we actually found a donor car. The donor car was a, a wrecked car that we found at auction. It was in a scrapyard. The thing is rolled over. We actually took the components out of it. We took the larger battery and the powerful motor out of it. And we also a lot of wiring harnesses, et cetera, et cetera. We actually converted his car to have over 300 miles of range as opposed to the, you know, the 260. And instead of zero to 60 in four and a half seconds, it now goes zero to 60 in under three seconds. So, you know, the, the things we can do are pretty, uh, pretty amazing. There's not really many places that you can get that done. Tesla will not do that for you. I think one of the reasons why they don't reach out is because I guess what would be the point? They're probably just kind of standing back and casually observing because again, I'm not jumping up and down and saying, oh, I hate Tesla, the worst company ever. Uh, a lot of what I'm doing is just kind of like fact-based. Like, hey, look, this is this is how it is. This is my experience. Uh, if your results may vary, and don't let this distract you from the fact that these are great cars still. If they weren't great cars, then I wouldn't have owned three of them. Well, I think I've owned probably actually no seven at this point. They know the power of social media, and they also know that even though I'm not perfect, I could make very reasonable and and convincing arguments against a lot of their practices and they know that and they know I could also influence a lot of people so so one of, one of my biggest things is I don't just shoot from the hip blindly and just you know bash the company or just arbitrarily say negative things you know all the things all the constructive criticism and feedback I have are things that I've seen things I've seen done and heard 
And it's different for me because not only do I, I'm around these cars 24 hours a day, I drive one every day, and I also own a company that services and repairs them. In terms of knowledge, you'd be hard pressed to find someone to go against. I'm probably the probably one of the last people you should probably you, should, you know what I mean? Like not, not I mean, it sounds bad. Like I, I feel like I'm tooting my own horn, but from a realistic sense, it, it'd be difficult to kind of go toe to toe against uh, an individual like me because I have the experience. Very, very few people, even the people that sell the cars, don't really know as much as we would. Even the people that, um, from an engineering standpoint, they may not necessarily know a lot because we have the physical access to the car. We touch these cars every day. And you've been listening to Rich Benoit, and he's the star of Rich Rebuilds, a popular YouTube channel. He's also the owner of the Electrified Garage. And my goodness, what you're hearing isn't the sound of a guy beating his chest. It's the sound of competence, born out of curiosity, which is a quintessential American characteristic. And my goodness, he's building a business, and he is loving on Tesla. It's a company he loves. He has criticism of the company. But my goodness, you can't love a company more, or at least its product, than Rich Benoit. He owns the car. He services the car. He talks about the car. And I'm sure he has sold a lot, a lot of Teslas. When we come back, more with Rich Benoit, his story here on Our American Story. And we continue here on Our American Stories with Rich Benoit's story. He reluctantly holds the title of the Tesla hacker as he started a successful YouTube channel and garage that focuses on repairing used Tesla cars. While the title might be catchy, it doesn't fairly portray the depth of his character or the passion of a man who is in the middle of achieving his own American dream. Let's continue with Rich. When I really started working hard was when I was trying to build and establish my YouTube channel as well as work my full-time job. That's when I was working because I was working literally two jobs. And one of those jobs paid the bills and one of the jobs was my passion. Now my passion was card, my passion was entertaining people, believe it or not. I've always wanted to be an actor and the whole YouTube channel was my outlet. So like, that was my passion. Like, I just love telling stories. I love making jokes. I legitimately love entertaining people. And this kind of stems back to me getting into IT. I realized very quickly that it wasn't about the tech. It was about the people. Because where else can you go to where you get to interact with that many people face to face besides maybe a sales job or, or you know what I mean? Or or an IT job. You get to like literally interact with every single person in the company. It's one of the few jobs that you have a complete encompassing effect on every employee in the company. And to me that was that was huge. I I at night I worked on my YouTube channel, I worked on the cars. During the day I worked at um at, at my IT job. And after a while, 
the YouTube channel was growing and the income from the YouTube channel was growing as well. So there was a certain point where I was working at my full-time job, making a full-time salary, and the YouTube revenue was growing to the point where it was approaching my salary. Now, when it comes to your passion, and when it comes to what pays the bills, you really have a decision to make here. Are you gonna follow this pipe dream and entertain people with silly videos on the internet that may not even be a thing anymore, that could just go away, or do you do what kind of feeds your family? After a while, one of those things is gonna start slipping. Like you can't manage, you can't have those two strings pulling you at the same time because eventually you're gonna to have to go in one direction or you're gonna get torn in half. And I, I didn't really realize, you know, like what was going to happen after, after some time, but the way you know that it's your time to go, there'll be a major sign. There'll be a painfully obvious sign that it's your time to go. Like a lot of people limbo back and forth, you know, should I do this, should I do that? You will definitely know. And, and my defining moment was when um, I was on the, the, the Joe Rogan podcast and I was at my full-time job. I got an email from Joe Rogan's uh, manager that says, hey, listen, Joe saw your article in the Boston Globe about you fixing Teslas. He wants you on his show. Joe's in California. I'm in Boston. We couldn't be any further apart. I said, you know, I got to go to this thing. Like, this is going to be amazing. This is going to skyrocket my career. The problem was, was that I didn't have that kind of vacation time. So I went to my boss and I said, hey, listen, you know, I need this time to, to kind of not be here. And he said, there's no one to cover for you because another person is going to be out during that time as well. (laughs) So, so what do you do? You know, that's, that's the defining moment that said, I'm not making what I make at work at this, at my quote unquote passion. But if I work even harder, I know I could. And I said pretty much right then and there, then I have to quit my job then. So I literally quit my job I had no no health insurance. I had I had really nothing. I, I had really no plan. I just knew that I had to go and I had to follow this path. And this was probably a month after the shop opened their doors. And a lot of the YouTube money that I was making at the side while I was working my full-time job was funneled into the shop. Every spare dollar I had was put into the shop. So I had no money. I never took a salary from the shop. I don't take any pay whatsoever from the shop because I know that there were two two guys, two young men that left their full-time jobs at Tesla to follow this dream. So I, I said to myself, I, I have to, this is the sacrifice I have to make. I'm going to do this. I'm going to go on the show. I'm going to promote the shop. I'm going to, this is what I have to do. This is my mission. And I knew that if it didn't work out, maybe there's a way I could find a job elsewhere, but I knew I had to take this shot. And it was it was the best decision I've ever made in my life. It was I, I've never I never looked back. I was I was so scared as to what was gonna happen next. Am I gonna be okay? But I thought that with the extra time that I had when I wasn't working a full time job, that would have more time for me. But no, absolutely not. When you're when you're an entrepreneur, when you're when you're self employed and it's your business and your company and your brand and your image, you will never work harder for anything else ever. 
when you go back to a, a full-time job, or if you were to go back, you will never work anywhere near as hard as if you've had your own business or company because that is you, that is yours. You're building your dream. When you work for someone else, you're building their dream. You're, you're, you're helping make money for someone else and what they do is they determine whether or not to give you a part of that cut. You know, at the end of the day, your hard work, there's no correlation between how hard you work and what you're compensated for, what the benefits are when you work for someone else because you could do whatever you want and after that year you have the review, they still they ding you and say, no, 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 this isn't gonna work, you can't, this didn't work out so well, here's your 5% raise. And you can look at them in the eye and say, hey, you know what, but I, I work so hard, like, what's going on? They say, well, the company doesn't have money this year, try again next year. When you're an entrepreneur, when you work for yourself, what I'm noticing, and it's probably because I'm very new, but there's no time off. It's every minute of every day is what's the next step? What's next? What can I do? How can I show the world this? How can I prove this? How can I do that? And it's it's such a, an amazing and an empowering feeling that even if, let's just say, something came up where I was making you know less than what I made before, I would still follow this path because it, there's something about passion. I, I never really knew what passion was until I went out on my own and I was able to make my own rules and just do whatever I wanted to do because there's something to be said about that. There's something to be said about creating and following your own path that it, it, it just can't be explained. Like every morning I wake up, I'm just, I'm so thankful that, that this happened and I can't encourage people enough to at least try it. Like take the dive, obviously make sure you're safe and everything. Make sure you have uh, you know have some financial planning and financial backing, but but going off into your own lane, paving your own path, and doing what you want to do, I would, man, I I can't, like I almost want to tear up. It's just so I feel so lucky that I'm able to do that. So this is this this is I'm living my dream. This is my American dream, and this is thing I'll never forget too. When I left. My boss said, are you sure you want to go do this whole silly YouTube thing? You don't know if it's going to be around X amount of years. This is a stable job that pays well. You need us. What he said. You need us. And I've never been so proud to exit something in my life than when I heard that. He said, you need us. And I, and I look back. One year, it's... This is so weird, right? That this is all happening now. In a few days, it will be one year since I left my full-time job. In a matter of days. I am happier. I am more successful than I've ever been. And that's because of determination and hard work. And it's because of my own personal determination and hard work. There is no one that could dictate how successful I'm going to be except for me. And my goodness, what a voice for entrepreneurship. I mean, it is good as it, it that is as good as it gets, folks. Are you sure you want to do that silly YouTube thing? The clarity, well, there it was. He knew what he had to do. You need us, he was told. And note the 
drive that gave him, the fuel, and that is fuel on the fire, folks, when people talk to folks who start things on their own. They want to prove that person wrong. By the way, that's not the reason to do it, but my goodness, it's the catalyst. And my goodness, the way he talks about the empowering feeling of owning something and following your passion, even if he earned less, he said, he could never go back to not creating and following his own path. It can't be explained, he said. Well, he did a pretty darn good job of explaining it. And for any of you who've ever gone out on your own and started something, started a business, you know exactly what he's talking about. Or just created something. Heck, started a church group, started a a Little League chapter or a PTA and really built it up so that you had ownership stake. And we talk a lot about owning things and property and free enterprise here on this show because it is the lifeblood of America. The American dream is alive. You're hearing it in Rich Benoit's voice and in his life's journey. Again, you've been listening to Rich Benoit, and he is the host of a popular YouTube channel called Rich Rebuilds. Watch it. It's riveting entertainment, even if you're not a car person. And, of course, he's the owner of the Electrified Garage. Rich Benoit's story, a classic American dreamer story here on Our American Stories.